This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Hey, do you remember in like 2012 or 2013 when it became cool to talk about algorithms? Algorithms. You got to say it like that, like it's really scary or something. Algorithms. My friends who were computer scientists or historians of computing who had been studying this stuff for decades upon decades were like, well, I guess I'm happy that journalists and like people in media studies or whatever feel like they've found an exciting way to talk about software, but really this seems a little silly. Algorithms. In some of the fields I traffic in, there's this formula people think is cool. It's critical X studies, where X is whatever technology happens to be really hypey at the moment. Like you could do critical AI studies. Can you feel how critical I am? I know you can. I know you can. So I Googled critical algorithm studies, and man, that was like 10 solid minutes of good fun. Pure gold. The punchline of that joke is if you look up the last updated timestamp on whatever web page comes up, it's always right in the middle of the period when saying algorithms was super sexy. It's like, hey, if you want to be truly critical, how about not writing along with the next technology hype wave that comes along? How about you try that one on for size, El Capitan Critical? One computer historian friend pointed out that algorithms are just sets of instructions and asked, why don't they call it critical instruction studies? And it's because it only works if the term has some magic juice that makes it sound mysterious. Algorithms. I wonder what poor bastard's going to suggest like critical metaverse studies or critical web three studies. Seems inevitable. This is why I propose creating the journal of critical, critical X studies studies just to keep those critical X studies folks on their toes. I got another one for you. Remember when people were saying big tech, big tech, you got to put some pathos into that one too. Big tech. You know, most of my friends who study technology define technology pretty capaciously. I mean, I'm interested in how human and non-human animals alter the physical world around them to achieve ends. So for me, even ancient stone tools are technology. But look, people were using the word technology in the early 20th century to talk about machines. So at the very least, we have to include things like that. So big tech How many employees does Facebook have? Like 60,000 before it starts reducing its headcount this fall? You want to know about a big technology company? How about fucking Toyota? I mean, they have like 360,000 employees. Or like there's this classic article on organizational capabilities that looks at some of the technologies that undergird Walmart success. Walmart employs 2.3 million people. That's big tech, baby. No, I don't know anyone cool who says big tech anymore. You know who I heard say big tech the other day? An associate dean. Now that is one of the most powerful signs that something is dead as a doornail that I've ever known. Like last year, an associate dean was talking to me and he was like, check this out. I have an idea. I know we should open up a new center on, get this, AI ethics. Huh? Huh? What do you think about that? I bet you've never even thought about that before, have you? Huh? 
It's like, no, Mr. Astine, I've never even considered such a thing. You're really, really cutting edge for like 2012 or whatever, Mr. Late to the Game. Jesus. Big check. Hey, have you heard of the tech lash? This is the term that took off in the mid 2010s to describe how journalists, academics, activists, and ordinary citizens turned against and began criticizing digital technology firms. These folks had a lot of good points, ones that I agree with, but it also clearly became a fad that we can examine from a sociological perspective. My guest in this episode is communication researcher Nirit Weisblatt. I think Nirit is a truly critical thinker, because while there is a strong temptation to simply go along with the flow of something like the tech lash, big tech, Nirit steps back and examines the tech lash as a social phenomenon. She does this in two ways. First, she looks at the rise of the tech lash itself. And second, she systematically examines how digital technology firms responded to the tech lash through public relations efforts. To my knowledge, she's the first person to do this so thoroughly. Since we recorded this interview, Nirit has put out more interesting pieces. I'll link to them in our various media streams. But one of them I really like is an examination of how Twitter's recent response to a whistleblower leak was virtually identical to Facebook's from a while back. And as she points out, it could be because the two companies are literally acting from the same playbook. Now, I'll let Nirit speak for herself in the interview about how she thinks about the morality and politics of digital technology companies. But personally, I think it's important to regulate digital technology firms. First, I think we have really screwed the pooch by not enforcing antitrust law because our legal system has become too invested in a conservative interpretation of antitrust that focuses too much on prices and consumers. We should not have allowed digital technology firms to buy up so many of their competitors, and maybe we should break them up. Second, there are a lot of things the public cannot determine about these companies without access to their data. So I think Meredith Whitaker and others are right to argue for laws focused on transparency and access. But I also think there's been an incredible amount of hype and bad reasoning around the tech lash that we can find in, for example, the work of Shoshana Zuboff and the terrible, terrible film, The Social Dilemma, both of which are nearly evidence-free in their claims that social media firms can control our behavior like puppet masters. And what I find in Neerit's work is the assertion that if we are to regulate corporations in a democracy, we must do so through reason, evidence, and sobriety. And I think Neerit pushes us further down that path. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Neerit. I had a great time with her, as you'll see. Get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start with the basics. Uh, if you find yourself talking to people about uh, your Tech Clash book, what do you say it's about and what were you trying to do with it? Well, I tell them it's the story of the tech industry and the tech coverage and how it shifted. Because I'm going back to the times of what I call the pre-Tech Clash era. And I'm saying how the tech coverage was then. Then I'm uh, showing all the analysis of why it's changed to the tech lash, tech backlash against big tech. So the underlying causes for it and also the tech crisis communication part of the book, as we said in the headlines, it's the how the companies reacted. So they needed to respond. Mm -hmm. They <laughs> cut uh, off guard, not ready for any of the backlash and uh, tons of scrutiny they got. So they needed to mm -hmm. roll out this playbook of crisis response again and again and again, so I analyzed that. And uh, this is the story of how we got here. Um, and it's actually yeah. not only for, you know, um, communication scholars or um, tech PR professionals or journalists, but also tech geeks who want to see what happened to their industry and why. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so just to have a, the definition, like what, when you say tech lash, how do you think of How do you define the tech lash? Uh, there's a very straightforward definition. It's uh, the ongoing negative reaction to the power of big tech companies, specifically those uh, placed here in Silicon Valley. 
And it's around different issues about, you know, privacy and um, election meddling and a lot of things that happened since 2016, 2017 and up. Mm-hmm. And how did you come to research this topic? How did you come to write this book? Um, the data that I analyzed forced me to. So that's actually a nice story to tell, because <laughs> um, I came to USC as a research fellow with a, a research proposal to analyze uh, what then was the pre-Teklash era. And my old thesis was uh, the you know, media not being tough enough. You didn't have investigative mm. journalism. So my whole spiel was, I want to see the power, uh, you know, the influence of corporate PR, and how everything that's positive and flattering that the tech companies roll out, it's copy-paste in the media. And to have like this really strong criticism of uh, um, tech coverage uh, in general, and how it's not like political coverage. It's also only softballs, not tough questions, etc. That was like the agenda. And then the world changed. <laughs> and when I analyzed 2017, uh, all the big tech companies didn't have just flattering, uh, you know, press releases yeah. of the new uh, iPhone or their RPO. It was scandals. It was all negative mm-hmm. stories. So I needed to pivot like a startup. And I changed my research altogether and started to really focus on this phenomenon because I had the data showing how all the headlines change and the big stories and the sentiment and uh, how the companies react. So then I added on that um, interviews with tech journalists and tech PR professionals to get like the inside story. So Mm -hmm. I had like this full picture of what happened. So I understood I have like gold in my hands and it's much bigger than an article in a journal. So I pitched a publisher and um, got the book contract one month before the pandemic hit. So that was actually a gift <laughs> for me. Yeah. Uh, the university got closed. I needed to do something at home. So luckily, I have tons of data. So I worked on my book. That's cool. And you have some, um, you know, for people who follow these topics, you have some, you did interviews with some pretty big tech journalists. So, and you have wonderful quotations from like Kara Swisher and. Yeah. Alexis Madrigal and these folks that, you know, if you've been paying attention to digital technology for a long time, uh, you've got some good stuff from them, I thought. Yeah, what I wanted to have is like uh, both sides of the story, like a balanced mm-hmm. picture. So it has mainly like the media narrative because I interviewed many uh, tech journalists who are very tough and uh, leading the tech clash. This is why I wanted mm-hmm. Kara Swisher. But I also put, um, as you read, uh, Jeff Jarvis. Uh, like mm-hmm. something from the other side to say, you know, some of it is moral panic, some of it is uh, media eels, uh, go back to how uh, media wants attention. So I had like not only their narrative, but people say maybe the pendulum swung too far. Well, yeah. they justify it, some others say it's problematic. So I wanted like this whole debate going on in my book to be with uh, the leading voices in both sides. Mm-hmm. I hope it works. Oh, yeah, I think it, I think it works. Um, you know, your book is divided, and you divide it kind of um, in historically, right? So you have these three moments: you have the pre-tech lash era, the tech lash era, and then the post-tech lash era. So, tell us a bit about the pre-tech lash era. You emphasize, you especially emphasize the role of computing magazines in the period of the '80s and '90s, which I think is a good move. So, tell us a bit about that that earlier moment. Yeah, um, I'm a tech geek myself, so I grew up uh, at a home um, in Israel that we needed to have like months after it was here in the U.S. getting all the computer uh, magazines at home, and I have piles of them. So I uh, firsthand, I knew that this is how we got information about tech industry if we were geeks and we were interested. And the type of magazines that we got were... uh, tons of weight because they have tons of advertising in them and they were very uh, enthusiastic it was very cheerleading a lot of fanboy culture about the new things that are being developed because frankly things were excited people were um, excited about this new startup being you know disruptors and the whole narrative was that they're going to change the world for the better. This is what they mm-hmm. <laughs> told they're going to do, right? That was their sell uh, pitch. And um, This was uh, actually the state of journalism when I joined. So since 2005, I worked as a uh, both tech PR professional and then a tech journalist. And during those days, I covered Israel's uh, innovation ecosystem. 
mm-hmm. it was mainly that, going from one startup event to the other and how they do their elevator pitch of their great invention. And that was the state of things. So the pre-tech launch was mainly that. So it's business communication about their you know, business side of the operation. And there are quarter results and things like that, but also all the product launches, product launches, and you know, just announcements yeah, yeah. of what they release to the world. Not a lot of criticism there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, then, as I said, there is the um, shift that happened after Donald Trump became the president. So you saw a lot of more emphasis on um, fake news and misinformation. And disinformation is an explanation uh, for his victory then. And of course, Cambridge Analytica, everybody knows, we blew it all up <laughs> for everybody yeah. to be more worried. But um, in essence, um, it was this fear from this, um, what journalists called the uh, post-presidential election reckoning of just understanding the power of the platforms and be more afraid of um, micro-targeting advertising about you know, privacy violation and things like that. But then it took off to all the other time bombs that it decimated. It was about uh, sexual harassment and uh, discrimination culture. It was mm. about um, uh, hate speech and uh, you know, extremist content going on online. And all those things that really just um, really exploded. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the journalist side, what I saw is that when, when you're a journalist, you have like this incentive to look at the prestigious uh, newspapers like you know the New York Times, uh, Washington <laughs> Journal, the Washington Post, and see what they cover. And mm-hmm. not intentionally, but you tend to cover the same topics with the same perspective, because if they do it, it's newsworthy, right? It, it counts as news, you actually. If, where there's smoke, there's fire, so you have to do that. And when the big you know, traditional media outlets shifted their uh, narrative there, um, tech is not our savior, it's our threat. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not cool, it's evil. Uh, yeah. Then all the rest uh, gradually um, adopt this method and do a lot of more investigative journalism. And then they found out a lot of shit. Because <laughs> there was a lot of shit. So it's not like there was nothing wrong. There are a lot of things that were concerning. Yeah. Now they were floating up. You, you have tech workers uh, actually you know, being whistleblowers now with their name, which was unheard of before. And a lot of um, things coming from the inside, showing things that are bad. So the journalists have even more incentives because they actually uh, provide data that can make actual things get better because the tech companies need to defend themselves, they need to change and put more safeguards. So it actually was, um, they saw that it's working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since then, this is the state of tech journalism, which is very different from the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You had a wonderful quote from Alexis Madrigal saying that, um, you know, journalism kind of follows the pack. And he didn't mean that in yeah. like a judgmental way, but there's like, this is what happens, right? This is how... Yeah, pack journalism is... It, the phrase yeah yeah um and so you know you that, the chapter where you describe that you know like this shift it's I, I think it's called big tech big scandals so what were yeah. some of the other scandals that were coming out during this period that was really making a change I and mean, we have trump and disinformation mm-hmm. we have sexism i don't know Susan there... Fowler at uber um, yeah that, was mm-hmm. a big thing because it like snowballed to all other uh, places in the industry in Silicon Valley and, and beyond, of course. Yeah. Uh, but she was the first. Um, I think we had just like, um, you know, the lies after the Las Vegas shooting and things like that, that you were experiencing horrible things. And then there was this um, conspiracy theories just uh, getting a lot of clicks for their theories that it was a hoax, <laughs> if we're talking about Alex yeah. Jones, etc. So you saw those things. Uh, get viral, which was uh, alarming uh, to many. And um, you had data breaches of billions of uh, users, uh, private details being spread around all over the place uh, at once. Uh, So it was this whole sense of, till now they were small and um, we weren't afraid from what they're doing or the ramifications of the products. But now they are the establishment, they're huge. So big tech, you need to break it. Everything became like big is awful. And uh, they're yeah. too powerful. And that was like the narrative. It's, it's their scale also, the bigness yeah. uh, that wasn't there before. And 
the uh, how they like control everything else because they spread around from what they're doing from their initial thing to tons of other things they see what Amazon just doing this month with healthcare and iRobot right like they're doing a lot yeah. of things that it's not the books shop right anymore um, yeah. the, the expansion was also I think overwhelming uh, too many so you have like the data uh, collection and protection you have the uh, data breaches you have uh, monopoly power and antitrust worries mm -hmm. everything like just at once yeah and you know like as some of you i mean like you know a central metaphor that runs throughout the book i liked your i like the um the bookmark that came with that uh you know like one one of the quotes is the emerging tech backlash is a story of pendulum swings and i think that you know using that metaphor and just thinking about cambridge analytica for a second and then this is something you write about in your book you know cambridge mm -hmm. analytica got so much attention you know, it kind of forms the basis of like anti big tech stuff like the social dilemma and other kinds of media coverage. And yet, you know, for, for, as far as like my friends who really study this stuff critically from like a STS perspective, as you talk about in the book, like they really think that Cambridge Analytica was way overblown and that the, you know, the statistical techniques used by Cambridge Analytica were a joke, basically. And there's no evidence that Cambridge Analytica had any kind of like control over voters or anything. And so, I mean, this was like a really clear example for me of this kind of pendulum thing, right? Like that um, both journalists and I think news consumers become willing to consume certain narratives. They almost want the narratives, right? To, to be a certain way is how it starts to feel like. Um, Jeff Jarvis talked about it a lot in the book, saying that it was a scapegoat. It's a way to blame the election on something that perceived yeah. as just perfect evil uh, and, and conspiracy of people who wanted power and use like psychological tests on, on human beings and things like that. It just sounds like a very good uh, movie. Yeah, from yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> uh, but in real right. life, uh, they didn't have the magic powers that they were marketing themselves to have. Yeah. Uh, research shows it was very small percentages of what people actually saw online. And even if they saw it, it doesn't mean they believe it. So if exactly, I see that the Pope yeah. is endorsing Trump, I don't think the Pope is endorsing Trump. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. most people don't. So the fact that they saw this headline doesn't mean, okay, so now I'm going to vote for him, right? So right. they put a lot of emphasis of like maybe um, thinking people are stupid, so this is why the headlines are working, but it, yeah. it's, not, it's not the reason that we yeah. got Donald Trump, even though it was very convenient for them to think it is. Totally. I agree. So, um, you know, in the in the chapter uh, after that one, um, you know, you talk and you study. I mean, you, you lay out your methods um, both in the intro and in the appendix, and um, you spent you looked at a lot of press releases. So, in the, the chapter after this one, you look at how the the tech companies are responding to this crisis and trying to do PR work. So, what you what do you find? What were they trying to? You know, what do you what were they up to? So the interesting thing is that uh, I had different companies and different scandals, and yet their uh, responses were very much alike. So no matter where I analyzed, uh, whether it's Uber and their things with not, uh, you know, doing almost criminal things with the government, or is it Facebook and Google and fake news now being viral, or is it like all the other things just had the same press release, almost like the same blog post in their corporate blog that says what the PR playbook tells you to write in a crisis. Mm -hmm. But besides the playbook that they have to roll out in crisis, they have the specific narrative that you only see in big tech crisis. And which this mm. is why I like uh, define it as tech crisis communication as a new uh, concept and not just crisis communication. Mm -hmm. What they are dealing with is different problems. If you are an airline and you had some fuck up in your airplane, you have the playbook and you fix it and I'm not going to use the plane and that's it and it's finished or the pilot is fired or whatever. In here, it's not like fixable with just one, two, three steps and done and it's fixed and, uh, yeah. and done with the scandals. So they are dealing with human people and human problems that are not that fixable, yeah. not by them. So they needed also to add, uh, our work will never be done. And mm. maybe it's bigger than us. And things that you usually don't see when you are uh, handling a crisis, because you need to calm the 
you know, the audience and say, we're going to take care of it and it's fixed. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't do it when yeah. it's a phenomena like your, uh, you know, information ecosystem, which is so complex. Yeah. They can't just, okay, we fixed it. They can't. So interestingly, they roll out the basic uh, strategies. Uh, we are the victim here. We were played by bad actors who manipulated our platform. We had good intentions and we have great policies in place. Um, so we are the victim here. And when needed, they rolled out the apology tours. Of course, Mark Zuckerberg done it the most. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we had tons of apologies all over the place. Uh, but then it's also it's, it's bigger than us. Uh, and our work will never be done, which is very unique uh, to tech. What yeah. we see now, it's this whole, um, what I call a tech PR template for crisis in the book, um, need to be updated. Things change mm. rapidly in my field of research because now yeah. they're not apo apologizing anymore. No more apologies. Yeah. So you can skip this stage of the playbook because they are done with apologizing, which is very interesting. Yeah. And when, I mean, do you think that shift hap happened after your book or? Yes, that? definitely. Yeah. Well, let's let's turn to that. And like, let's turn that in a, in a minute, though, then. Mm -hmm. So what, if we stick with like what you wrote in your book, um, like how, how do you think that how effective were these responses? How, how effective did you, do you think this kind of like it's more than us, which I think like technologically is just kind of honest, frankly, um, you know, like because it is about media ecosystems and stuff like this, it is bigger than the countries or companies rather, mm -hmm. but how do you, how do you think that their, their kind of, their PR work, I mean, you're a, you're a PR professional, right? Yeah. So like, how do you think it, was it effective and like? The answer is no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. And um, yeah. there's a section uh, in my book, so I'm doing like the strategy and how it backlashed. Another strategy and how it yeah. backlashed. So everything backlashed because no matter what they roll out, when they said they are the victim here, company said, no, it's your right. platform and the way it's designed and not just bad actors. Mm -hmm. And when they said, sorry, they say, okay, you, you apologize by words are meaningless if you're not doing any actions. And then yeah. what they said, these are the steps that we're doing for improvement. Uh, the answer of journalists and critics were, okay, it's not enough. You need to change like your business model, things that are huge that yeah. are not going to change. Right. And when you say that it's, um, you know, your work will never be done, yeah, it's because you were blind to put all the safeguards that you're supposed to do in advance and you didn't, so you need to fix your chaos. So everything they rolled out, there was a huge backlash to those responses. So no matter what they tried, it didn't work. Um. And so I want to move on into the kind of post tech last period in a second, and um, and and also talk about you know that what we what you were discussing earlier about like how things have changed since you know you were you finished writing the book. But you know um, where do you think you kind of end up at the end of the tech clash period as defined in your book? So what are some of the topics you see playing out and what you call the evolving tech clash issues? Where where does it kind of end before COVID hits and things start to shift? So the COVID shift was so small and little, only a few weeks of a yeah. second honeymoon for the tech platforms that it really didn't change the overall picture of the tech clash. It keeps on rolling and getting stronger. So uh, when I call it the post tech clash, it doesn't mean that the tech clash is over. It won't be right. anytime soon or ever. But uh, like just the issues that we're going to deal with going forward. And the name of the chapter is Never Ending Criticism. <laughs> question mark? Yeah, question mark. And the answer mark, is yeah. yes. Never. Yeah, the question mark we can list it in the next edition. No <laughs> question marks. Uh, exclamation marks. It's just like, yeah, yeah never-ending criticism. That's the state of things. And um, I think they're seeing more whistleblowers, more workers being frustrated with things. Uh, they see more uh, bipartisan attacks for totally different reason, but <laughs> we leave that aside. And they are like the perfect uh, enemy number one now. Uh, and this is why I think they are uh, changing their uh, crisis communication. Yeah, and so Sam, I mean, I think that it's been a while since uh, this story came out, and I don't really remember straight. But I mean, I think Zuckerberg, at you know, at Meta or whatever the hell it's called now, you know, basically said like, 
no more apologies, right? I mean, there was a there was a kind of top down decision that they were done playing that game. So tell us a bit about that. I mean, what how is the the crisis communication strategy shifting now in your your perception? Yeah, so everything got escalated here. So the critics, their rhetoric escalated. So it's not just Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg are evil. They are a doomsday machine. They yeah. are an autocratic foreign hostile entity that's going to uh, destroy democracy. So everything has got huge on the criticism side. And what it did, what it did is just backlash inside the tech companies. Because for them, mm. if it's a constructive criticism, something that we fucked up in our, you know, not doing the content moderation you wanted or whatever, we can handle that. Yeah. But if you come and say that we're a doomsday machine, yeah. Uh, screw it. What, what, are, what is going to be our answer to that, right? Like, how are you going right. to respond to that? So they started to just not listen, because why would they? For them, it's just, yeah. you know, uninformed cynicism that being thrown at them. And yeah. even when there's valid criticism, they're already in, in the state of like, yeah, well, just not going to listen. And that's a bad thing. Because the criticism got overboard with the exaggeration, as you said, the social dilemma and things like that, portraying everybody yeah. just manipulated by algorithms, which is not the case. For them, it's like, if we need to explain the basic of not the, you know, billions of people being manipulated, brainwashed by algorithms every day, all the time, then it's not even a you know, productive conversation to have because we're not even have, like on the other side, something balanced to yeah. talk to. So they're just saying, ah, okay, we're going to continue to promote our things that we think that are good because they still, of course, believe what they're doing is good. And yeah. um, it's not a good conversation to be at. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I think I'm interested in what you say. It's like it's not a good thing because, you know, it leads them to start maybe tuning people out when they still need to be listening in a sense, right? Yes. Because there are real concerns, right? But if yeah, there you, are real concerns. Yeah. Um, the exaggeration part is what makes it them be maybe tone deaf at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, there's so much literature on, on this, you know, kind of like, you know, it gets called tribalism. It gets called, um, oh, there's so many words for this. But what, what, what's, for, to me, what I started becoming kind of aware of couple year or two ago and it's kind of become more pitched in the last six months or so is how kind of like anti big tech is almost an identity for some people and this is true on and the interesting thing is like the venn diagram is that actually there's parts of the left and right you know i think they don't share concerns they have different concerns about what they want from these companies but you know it, it's almost become like anti-big tech is my identity, so it really doesn't matter like whether I'm getting good uh, good evidence or good reasoning about this. Like if it's anti-big tech, I'll be for it. And if it's, you know, if it's pro-big big tech or whatever, I'll discount it heavily. And that's kind of like, you know, that's kind of how our society's become with a lot of things, but it's it leads to some bad outcomes, I think. Yeah, this is why the cover of my book, as you said, is the pendulum swing. Because yeah. there's no middle in pendulum, it's either the one extreme or the other, right? So uh, right. we don't have the, the more nuanced, balanced middle because nobody's interested in the middle. Like hearing that the world is going to hell and we're all doomed is much more interesting than a balanced discussion, right? And yeah. blaming them for everything is easier, so let's do it. So I think it's just something yeah. that happens. And there are not a lot of uh, people to, you know, be on the defensive side of big tech now. It's not popular. Yeah. Um, so you had a more recent piece on, uh, you know, that this interesting gap between Google and Facebook where like, uh, you know, people really hate Facebook. Zuckerberg, I mean, I think he's just a wonderful target. You know, it's, he's, he's, it's, it's joy to hate him for whatever reason. Uh, but, you know, in Google, I mean, it's not like anti, you know, the kind of big tech critics have certainly gone after Google. But yet when we do these social surveys that you talk about in this piece, it's really clear people dislike Facebook more than, than they have these feelings towards Google. So, I mean, from your you're kind of, you know, spinning out your theory and of these things, what's your understanding of this difference? Well, the most backlash sector in the tech clash is social media. Not mm -hmm. 
whatever Google or Apple are doing or Microsoft. It's social media because it's the information ecosystem and things that people are yelling about the most is content and misinformation mm-hmm. and hate speech and things like that that are, um, you know, human speech and that's been, um, you know, visible or viral via those networks. And this is what uh, scared people the most. And if you only hear about the damages of what the social media, you know, ecosystem brought to our uh, information ecosystem, uh, then this is why it's perceived as much, much more uh, damaging than, let's say, hardware companies or something like uh, Google. Yeah. I think they're well, very I mean, glad that they don't have Google+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the all the of all the failed Google products, yeah. they're mo- they're most happy they don't have that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but I mean, YouTube's gotten. But I mean, what you know, what stands out to me um, in the social surveys you point to in that piece is that um, you know, like YouTube's got a fair amount of hate when it comes to, or like criticism when it comes to. Um, but not even you know, close extremism. to the amount of Facebook is getting. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Even if it should. Maybe, if, you know, people spend much more time watching uh, videos on YouTube that they think they are watching, uh, maybe radicalizing things on Facebook, but it doesn't get the same scrutiny as Facebook. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, like radicalization, you have this new piece coming out that I, I wanted to talk a, a bit about, which is on, um, you know, social media and democracy. And um, radicalization is one of the many topics you um, touch on in there. So why don't you just kind of outline the piece for us? And then I have a bunch of questions I have for you I want to talk about. But ah, yeah, just okay. tell us what you're up to. Yeah. Yeah. So uh what I do day and night as a tech media um, you know, researcher is just reading the coverage and seeing like the narratives and the subjects and everything else. And there's uh, The Atlantic that are really leading mm. some of the, you know, Doomsday Machine that I just mentioned. And they yeah. had a piece by Professor Jonathan Hyatt, um, which was a big hit. It was viral. It was uh, successful. People dated about it. It was why the past 10 years of American life has been uniquely stupid. Mm-hmm. And his definitive answer was social media as the cause for everything. Yeah. And then he published a sequel. <laughs> yes, social media really is undermined democracy. Mm. So my next um, uh, piece is uh, actually, we don't have definitive proof social media is undermined democracy. And in there, I'm, um, I will say attacking, but uh, <laughs> actually criticizing some of the assertions of uh, his pieces because mm-hmm. he should know better. <laughs> so yes, what he's he done is he, he took uh, conflicting studies that we have a lot of them in social science research um cherry pick the ones that are uh showing all the phenomena that are harmful and bad for democracy and then mm-hmm. he came out with a definitive headline right yeah. but he knows because he made a huge google doc out of it that then a specific like the same amount of studies that said yes uh, you have study that says, no, actually those phenomena doesn't work this way in social media, and maybe mm. the opposite phenomena is what's happening. And you have another third of you know, uh, studies that says, you know, <laughs> it's inconclusive. We don't know. It's not significant enough. Yeah. So he should know that when he talks about field of bubbles and echo chambers and the rabbit holes and a lot of other theories, there is the theory and there is the criticism of the theory, evidence mm. that it works and evidence that it's actually not grounded and not founded and... and it's actually the opposite that is happening online. So he just chose those horrible things and blamed Meta for cherry picking studies that says the opposite. And my point in this uh, piece is, of course, both sides can cherry pick their studies because it's debatable, because you have contradictory evidence. And, you know, just having definitive headlines doesn't make it true. And it doesn't help the uh, debate that I uh, hope would be uh, better. And actually, I'm saying, while science is raising those question marks, the media is shouting the exclamation marks with the help of critics like him. Yeah. Uh, Because as I said, it's part of the narrative uh, to have everything scarier than maybe it is. Mm -hmm. And 
this is why we have headlines like that. Yeah. I um did you like so that one of the pieces you talk about um uh in in your piece is that uh that that thing was in New Yorker like in June it, it was by Gideon <clears throat> Lewis Krauss how harmful is yeah. social media I thought that was piece was pretty good at kind of pushing back on height and saying like that he yeah. was overclaiming in a sense did you like that piece uh, very much. I quote a lot of <laughs> things from yeah. uh, that piece in my piece uh, because he's showing that we have less scientific consensus on both, you know, the positive and the negative than the uh, the Atlantic article by uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan. So uh, then the new piece is like a response to that and to Meta, where he actually doubled down <laughs> on his claims uh, yeah. and continue to overplay the harms and downplay the study to show otherwise. So uh, yeah. it's continuing <laughs> the debate. It is continuing. <laughs> By the way, I'm 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 very proud to have called um, uh, the Atlantic in my first book, "Moving Violations: <laughs> A History of Automobile Regulation." I called the the Atlantic like a bastion of liberal anxiety, um, and I think that that's basically it's basically become like kind of like a worry porn uh, outlet. Unfortunately, you know, like they, it yeah. still does some good stuff, but it really kind of feeds into the worst kind of anxiety fueled stuff without a lot of evidence. A lot Which is of time, exactly so. what they're blaming social media for. It's wild, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, the exactly. exact same sentences they're using about the tech platform. Exactly. The I know. Word. I know. So I thought, you know, because some of the listeners probably wouldn't have, um, you know, read the New Yorker piece and um, I will direct them to the, this will come out after your piece is out. So I'll direct them to your piece on social media and democracy. But I thought we could like just touch on a couple topics that you, sure. you cover. So like, what is, what did you find like research says about filter bubbles, for instance? So filter bubbles are like the idea that because we use social media and social media is kind of giving us algorithmic uh, feedback that basically the social media platforms, they end up just feeding us what we want. And so we don't see the opposing view or anything. So what, what, what does research say about filter bubbles? Well, the research is very interesting here because it was, um, is now in most cycles concerned, uh, considered overblown because a lot of studies mm-hmm. that reviewed like the empirical evidence says, well, there's no empirical evidence that, should make us worry about this phenomena of, you know, both echo chambers mm. and filter bubbles. It's based on like this flimby foundation of just anecdote, anecdotal evidence. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it happens. You can have your closed cycle and this is the only thing you see. But the contradictory point is that online you are exposed to much more, you know, variety of things and opinions that you wouldn't be exposed otherwise in your very homogeneous, you know, neighborhood, family, whatever group that you yeah. belong to. Actually, online, you're exposed to much wider. So maybe it's yeah. part of the anxiety because you see things that otherwise you wouldn't, and it makes you right. yell at the other part, <laughs> and they yell at you back, so it makes this war between sides, but you wouldn't see this side, uh, you know, the other side, unless you go online and fight with them because it's not part of your initial group. Yeah. So it's actually yeah. what most of the things you see, it's like, the opposite of the <laughs> filter bubble. Yeah. You, you can't filter everything if everything is there and you can see your friends sharing the opposite side. Oh, they're stupid. No, they're stupid and they're funny, but you can see the other side, right? That maybe you yeah. wouldn't see otherwise. So you have um, studies that show actually the opposite, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is my take. So I, you know, I've been looking for about, I mean, I'm not an expert on media consumption or, um, or any of the topics really covering, but I have been looking into the sociology and psychology of media consumption for like a decade. And what always strikes me about people who kind of really play up algorithms and filter bubbles and the effects of social media and all this kind of stuff, right? That social dilemma picture and these Mm -hmm. is they never mention kind of like what's called motivated reasoning or confirmation bias, the fact that we know people seek out information that they want and discount information they don't want, or like cultural cognition, the view that like we belong to mostly homogenous social groups, right? That our Mm -hmm. neighborhood, the groups we hang out in are even, as you're saying, more homogenous than what we're seeing online. 
and that we're active consumers of media, okay? Mm -hmm. That we're going out and looking for what we want and and as part of our our identity, right? As a group, like we're evangelical Christians or we're lefty people Mm -hmm. who hang out in college towns like me, right? And, and like, so like a lot of what we see on social media is just how humans operate in a media environment and, as members of groups, you know? And more than that, let's go back to, uh, you read Jeff Jarvis said it in the book, the, the media ills. So what is the media ills? Like the attention economy that everybody's blaming social media. It's the media attention economy that, you know, goes back decades. It's the radio show that got us yelling at each other left and right. They got, uh, cable news, as, as you mm. said, you choose either CNN, MSNBC, or you choose Fox, right? You're not watching both. Yeah. I, I watch everything because I'm analyzing everything, but I, I'm unique, right? Most people just right, have right. We're weird. <laughs> their um, places that you want, yeah. like, as you said, the confirmation bias. So uh, it actually goes in traditional media much stronger for decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now yeah. social media plays out on top of that ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is often, I'm always disheartened when, um, like I just saw there was a new Ezra Klein piece today where he's talking about, um, Marshall McLuhan and Mm -hmm. Neil Postman and all this stuff. And like, I have this really cool, uh, sociology of media book on my shelf where it was like media sociologists in the seventies going after McLuhan. Cause they're like, this is bullshit, frankly. Like if people are like consuming newspapers and magazines that reinforce their p- political views, even if they like, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS mm-hmm. or a certain kind of thing, they were always going, had media sources that were propping up their specific identities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that a lot of times this filter bubble conversation gets like set against an over idealized background of like what media consumption was like in the 70s or 80s or whatever you so, know uh Hyde had actually done the same in his piece so his whole thesis is about the 2010s so he's saying okay social yeah. media rose to power also polarization um you know got uh wider as well so let's make sweeping negative generalization about all of it that just don't hold yeah. up and saying this caused this Okay, but (laughs) as we uh, all know, uh, correlation is not causation, and it doesn't imply that this is the cause. It happened maybe together, sure, with many other factors uh, that can explain it. Uh, But Mm. his whole thesis is that. And then in my piece, I'm showing that um, in 2004, this was this really iconic research that I love about uh, blogs, and now they interact before the 2004 uh, U.S. election. Oh, this was beautiful. <clears throat> I love this in your piece so much. This was so great. Please come so on. So it was. Oh, that was great. Uh, all the debate and all the incoming links those blogs got about debating the issues before the election. No social media back then. Yeah. Okay, we're talking about blogs. They were the big promise of Web 2.0. And she analyzed, she um, two colleagues um, analyzed the data and showed how the networks were, who have like this red ball of networks of every dot yeah. connected to each other. You have this big, huge ball of all the dots uh, connected right. to each other that are uh, red. So it was a huge separation between the red and the blue. And with little, little, very little lines of just yeah. connecting between them about like the subjects and the topics and the discussion. Like, it was two yeah, yeah. different discussions before the elections in blogs. And yeah. can you blame polarization <laughs> on vlogs? I don't think yeah, yeah, yeah. is doing that. Yeah. Well, yeah. exactly. And I think what, it, you know, what I was trying to say earlier that I, mean, I forgot about that chart. I loved it. But it was just like, um, it just shows you how kind of like the sociology of, of, com- of media production and consumption, right? That like what we see uh, when it comes to like polarization is mm-hmm. could you know that the, you know we it's hard to draw causal arrows as you say but it could just be how we act politically as political beings not like the algorithm affecting us you know and um and, and the same goes about what you said about um rabbit holes and being like an everyday pro- people that just turn to be yeah. radical extremists so it's one of um uh, jonathan's points uh, but then the answer 
is that it's mainly based on anecdotal evidence that happens, yeah. does happen, we don't say it's not. Um, but m most of the times, the people who are already have like their own yeah. extreme uh, radicalized thoughts and they seek out intentionally this vile contact via subscription and things like that. So it's not yeah. like we had like radicalizing recommendation algorithms brought them there. It's they didn't fall into it, they choose it. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's problematic. It has its own problems because if you yeah. have those radicalized individuals who are um, seeking extremist content to reinforce their, you know, predispositions, yeah. that's problematic and can be dangerous. But we need to focus on them. Not to say the entire population, all the people, all the normal people are being radicalized on a daily basis by algorithms. No, it's yeah. this segment of the population, which is dangerous, that's going through this process that we need to investigate, but not we should not make generalization about the entire population because of that. Yeah. Well, I see it. I mean, I have a friend who, um, you know, uh, one of my good friends, he, he is, has one of the most beautiful tastes in music and knows more about the history of music than almost anyone I've ever met in my life. He also was a 9-11 truther back in the day, you know, and then he became like a QAnon guy now. And I, it's very clear from his behavior that he actively seeks this stuff out you know it wasn't like some youtube uh suggestion that you know you, he's a wonderful test case for the seeking out thing and I, I when i talk about the sociology of uh media use too i often say like you know the whole russian disinformation thing like this whole topic <clears throat> you know which had two sides right i mean it was about QAnon and feeding memes to that thing. But it was also about apparently a lot of Black Lives Matter and stuff yeah. like that, like feeding memes to that. Um, but, you know, the, I think to me the key is you can throw memes at like a social group all day long, but unless they're willing to take it up and share it and the energy of actually the, the group kicks in of like wanting to share that thing, there's no energy there, right? It, it's actually the group doing the group sociological group thing that gives that the energy it's and maybe the algorithm saying well people are really excited about this so you should see it but still it's like the energy is coming from how groups operate more than from the technology it seems like to me you know or at least that's like that's got to be part of the picture too i think you know yeah this is why it depends as, as i said about fake news the fact that a uh, small you know uh, percentage of people see the headline doesn't mean when they read it, they believe it. And even if they yeah. share it, maybe it's just to make fun of, oh, look at this stupid headline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, like, where does your, you know, like, I think we should, like, pull back and look at, like, where your your um, picture leaves us, you know, and I, I hear, when I say us, I mean different groups, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, for me, like, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, the the United States made a wrong turn with uh, antitrust policy in the eighties or something like that. I think the fact that these companies have a lot uh, been allowed to like hoover up loads of potential competitors is bad, right? Um, there are issues around polarization and the roles of social media in polarization that worry me. Mm -hmm. um, and there's other, you know, I could bring up other topics. Um, but, you know, like, so where does your picture leave me? I think what you're saying is that we just need to have a more kind of nuanced and calm discussion about this and look to what the evidence is actually showing us. Is that is that fair? Yes. Um, so in the piece, I'm using a metaphor of my own. Uh, John has its Tower of Babel thing that I'm, I didn't get, but I'm using a much simpler <laughs> metaphor. I'm saying that... Everything now is being covered by the media through um, what I call the Teclash filter. And mm -hmm. while Instagram filters make their subjects look shiny and pretty, uh, so I don't have wrinkles and I'm 20 years old, which I'm not, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Teclash filter uses like hyperbolic metaphors that we mentioned just to make social media look scarier than it is. Maybe it's scary. It has its own, uh, you know, bad phenomenon. But it just makes it more mm -hmm. to the extreme. And what it causes is that Politicians are looking at those headlines and those analysis and say, oh, so we have to regulate based on these assertions that are, are a fact. They're like undeniable fact if you read The Atlantic, right? Mm. Uh, when it's not true. So then you get all these, uh, what I call, um, press release bills. 
you know, that might not go anywhere, yeah. even though they have good intentions, maybe. But you yeah, know, yeah, the yeah. devil is in the details, because then you, you look at their formation, and they were based on this very, uh, you know, inconsistent evidence, and they decide, okay, let's throw out this suggestion, this overly simplistic <laughs> suggestion of how to fix social media yeah. that can actually cause more harm than good. And this is my fear, that it's like misguided. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's tough, you know, and I have a lot of friends who are in the um, kind of very much in the anti-big tech camp. And I think, you know, I'm I'm a pro-regulation guy. I mean, my first book is about regulation. You know, I'm all in favor of re using regulations where it makes sense. And, it, you know, maybe it does here. But it's also, I think, grown. I, well, let me put it this way. It has grown increasingly difficult to see through the smoke on both sides of the thing to see like what's like what's actually reasonable and what's actually concerning when we have so many kind of hyperbolic claims as you're saying you know so i think one of the bills that were actually good um uh, good things to promote is was about like greater transparency that we need to have that it's crucial here yeah so researchers definitely need to get much more data from uh, tech companies because now they perceive mm -hmm. just as black boxes producing black boxes things that we yeah. don't understand they don't understand and it's easier to fear everything and to put all our fears yeah. onto it right because it's black box but if they give right. us much more um you know raw data to play with we have a more informed arguments we, we need them yes. desperately we're hungry for informed yeah, arguments yeah. please <laughs> Yeah, and I think this is, you know, this is something Meredith Whitaker's been pushing for is just more um, kind of public access to to their data. And, you know, here's my, here, so here's my thing, you know, like I have this kind of critahype concept, right? Yes. Um, that where I've played with where it's like, all right, we have the hype from, you know, that's your pre-TechLash moment is like all the tech coverage and like it's all good and beautiful. And then we have... You know, this other group of actors who I think play up the hype of the technology, but to say it's like really awful, right? So like, you know, algorithms controlling our mind would be a great example. Um, well, where was I going with that? Oh, shit. I well, I think it's that bullshit detectors hype players that maybe... Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I was going your... somewhere with that thought. Well, actually, um, I wanted to mention your piece blinded yeah. by the hype, if I may. Oh, yeah. So um, doing my own research before this podcast, I read this piece you wrote with Jeffrey Funk. Uh, it was about the yeah. type machine. And in there, um, I, and I quote, you wrote, the tech hype machine has uh, latched on to the saddest technologies yet. Non-fungible tokens, <laughs> yeah. NFTs, blockchain-based Web3, and Facebook metaverse. The poor need better yeah. housing, healthcare, education, and transportation, not an NFT of a goofy cartoon monkey. I loved it. So I would actually love to hear <laughs> your take on this issue, because if we're talking about hype, uh, crypto and Web3 yeah. is like the biggest hype now. Even with the crash, yeah. you have billions of dollars of fun they're still going into all the uh, crypto startups so I'd really love to hear your take <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting i so i i i you know i don't make predictions about the future this is like a uh it's like a stance i have on things but i'm into betting markets you know mm -hmm. like if i had to put money on something i think there's more air to come out of the tech bubble you know, I think we're not, my guess is that we're not done yet. And I just really wonder how long, if the air really comes out more, I really wonder like whether Web3 and NFTs and these kind of things are going to stick around. Like maybe, I'm just like, Web3. If they have billions I of dollars black, spend on them, something will stick. Something might, but I'm not sure the Web3 vision of like this, you know, we, we had web one, yeah. we had web 2.0. I really don't think this web three is like a new turning point in the internet. That's what I'm, I, I'm not buying into yet. You know? Well, a lot of it is the, what do you the, think? The get rich quick scam. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, schemes. It's like, <laughs> maybe it will be worth much, you know, um, in the future. Yeah, so yeah. let's buy this thing. And it's just like speculative. And, and this is, yeah. and, you know, tekronize everything to like a transitional economic thing that maybe is not good for all content. So I'm more of the, uh, in, yeah. on the skeptic side of things. Or maybe like the crash is a good thing because it's clean some of the scam. Yeah. 
of the utopian right. BS and brings us more like the actual, what are you solving? <laughs> what is it good for? Yeah, yeah. Didn't or, answer are that you going to make profits yet. anytime they soon? They didn't answer that question yet. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, I think that there's, I've actually been looking into older theories in economics, uh, including, you know, Joseph Schumpeter, the founder of innovation economics. Um, so you're even geekier than I like, am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've been looking into these arguments that like recessions are good because what happens at the end of bubbles basically is that you end up with people invested in a bunch of bullshit that's not productive. Mm -hmm. And then when you have like a serious recession, people get very uh, critical and practical and are just like, show me results. Mm -hmm. Are you going to make profits? Is this going to work? And there's a kind of purgative effect. But here, I now know where I was going with hype and criti-hype. Okay. My, my, so like when we're coming to this transparency question, I think that one reason that the the social media companies can't be super open about this is because they're on the hype side and they want to tell their advert the people who are buying advertising that they're like powerful in terms of you know effective advertising platforms which like kind of makes it seem like their algorithms have power and they have these powers and I think there's so much countervailing evidence that actually online ads aren't that effective, you know? Yeah, Joe Bernstein had this in this bad news piece uh, in uh, Harper magazine where he talked about disinformation. Yeah. It was part of his thesis, right? The saying, why they're not fighting the disinformation claim so much? Maybe because it shows, oh, they are powerful. So you should yeah, exactly. add in our uh, platform. Yeah, it was very long read. Um, Good piece. He wanted to be right. provocative and create a debate, which I'm glad he did. Yeah. So. so what's next for you? Um, still collecting, still researching, maybe a Techless 2.0, but <laughs> yeah. um, I actually decided to leave academia and go back to the industry, which is not, uh -huh. I didn't invent it during COVID. Everybody wearing like junctioning the life and decided what's next. So I decided I want to, I don't want to continue the Tainer Track Professor uh, madness yeah. if I can avoid it. So I hear you. It is madness. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, like, so that's cool. Can you say a bit more about what we, what do you want to do in industry, or I mean, what you're hoping to do? Sure. So uh, a part of the like the journalist hat that I'm wearing, um, publishing uh, tech dirt mainly, being a contributor, doing all the uh, opinion pieces. I'm actually want to be more of a like more. Um, a columnist that do it uh, not sporadically, but always. Uh -huh. And the other thing that I think is of value is me being consultant uh, to the companies about, okay, this is how you messed up things and this is how maybe yeah. you can uh, fix it. So uh, maybe not inside their comms because that's too much being on their side, but they yeah, do need yeah. to learn how to react better and I can give them tools. I think that's cool, man. I'm looking forward to seeing what you um, turn out next. I think you're a, like kind of a cool voice out there and like really paying attention to, uh, you know, to their to the kind of the back of the dialectic between these two groups, right? Um, the I funny think you thing pay, is you that pay a lot. The, the, in the yeah. last podcast that I was on, it was a very harsh tech critic that uh, like his first question was, is it true that you are getting paid by big tech to say your things? And I'm like, uh, no. Yeah, I wish. I'm not. I'm not getting anything from Big Tech. I never, never yeah. got anything from them. But just yeah. the state of the tech class that you can say like that you're asking for a nuanced discussion and not being paid by them. It's like the, he couldn't imagine that I'm just saying it because no. I'm a researcher and not because they bought my opinion or something, which never happened, which is just to say yeah. this is where we're at, right? <laughs> Really? No, I mean, I mean, you know, this is a, you know, Andy Russell and other friends and I have made this joke before. It's like, you know, we'll see something, you know, kind of tech lashy and be like, I, is the evidence for that strong? You know, and it's like, oh, we should just go work for a conservative think tank now, because if you ask that question, you're obviously on the on the side of evil, you know? And so, yeah, I know what you mean. It's rough. <laughs> yeah, but, but well, my, my whole... Uh agenda here is really saying that we need some middle that it's not interesting yeah. we said in middle is not interesting nobody cares about no. middle just the extremes but we have to if we want to make things better yeah 
Amen to that. Nira, thank you so much for spending some time today with me today. I enjoyed it a lot. It was fun, yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.